A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast on the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. What the hell is going on? An extraordinary few days in British politics after what seems like an extraordinary few months and few years. I've left the studio to come to Westminster to try and speak to uh, the people here on the ground uh, to find out exactly what has happened ever since that extraordinary meeting at Chequers on Friday, followed by David Davis's resignation on Sunday night, then Boris Johnson's resignation on Monday. And after all of that, Theresa May seems to have emerged uh, stronger than ever. Later in the programme, I'll speak to Katie Perry, a former Director of Communications for Theresa May in Number 10, and Rupert Harrison, who was George Osborne's Chief of Staff. I'll get their take on where the politics in the Tory party stands and whether or not the next generation of Tory leaders is starting to emerge. I'll also catch up with my Times colleagues in our parliamentary office on the roof of the House of Parliament, where I'll find out, amongst other things, the connection between the size of the political crisis and the size of the hole in Sam Coates' trousers. But I begin by meeting up with Alistair Campbell, former spin doctor to Tony Blair, and we discussed how in the past he'd helped write the resignation letters of cabinet ministers and how he thinks this is all going to affect Brexit. So I'm on a park bench now, um, just along the river from the Palace of Westminster with Alistair Campbell. Alistair, just sort of sum up what you've made of the past 48 hours, you know, since what's happened in Chequers. From a sort of, with your spin, former spin doctor's hat on, if this had happened while you were in number 10, what would you be telling the Prime Minister? Probably just get on with it, but also I think to use it as a moment to exercise real leadership. I think what's happened in the last couple of days, or since the Friday meeting at Chequers, is that some pretty hard, brutal truths have, have hit home. One is that the Tory party is pretty much irreconcilable on this, and she should stop trying to please everybody all the time. She can't do it. And I think the second thing is that there is no easy way of doing this and I think part of her problem has been that she's she's tried to give the impression that, that there's some amazing future out there. I think jo- Bryce Johnson was characteristically pretty harsh on her in saying that she hasn't tried to be optimistic. I think she's way overdone the optimism <laughs> about what can actually be done with the Brexit that she's trying to make sense of. So, And it's really strange. I, I was actually in um, in Albania yesterday. I do quite a lot of work in the Balkans, and I was with uh, the Albanian Prime Minister, who's now in London, because there was this Western Balkan summit. And it's so strange to be in Albania 
where there is a strong and stable government that is progressive, that is focusing on people's priorities, and the poor Prime Minister was sitting around there waiting, not knowing what was going to happen with this summit because there was this utter chaos in what is meant to be one of the great strong democracies. And so this is the summit that Boris Johnson was supposed to be at, was supposed to be hosting, yeah. uh, welcoming uh, leaders from across the Balkans, and just never showed up. Yeah, well, these guys are all sort of hanging around and waiting, foreign ministers tweeting left, right and centre, saying this is becoming embarrassing. I thought it was an extraordinary comment from Carl Bildt, who, you know, the former Swedish Prime Minister, who's still, a, I think, quite a big player on the kind of international scene. And he, he commented yesterday, he said, this country used to provide strong clear leadership to the world now they can't lead themselves and I do think we're becoming a bit of a joke and you know I've just been overdoing some some media about Boris Johnson the extent to which the media still buys this idea that he's some kind of heroic attractive figure the guy is completely busted flush and certainly as a foreign secretary has to go down in history with some pretty strong competition as the worst this country has ever had. I think there is even a disconnect I think between there are some journalists who think he's because he's a journalist and because he knew, knows how to feed that particular strand of you know even his resignation letter was written like a column with these sort of colourful turns of phrase and, and the, I mean posing I mean you, you, you've seen lots of people come and go is this the first time you've ever seen anyone pose for their own resignation photo? Uh, that's a very good question. The letters normally get the letters are normally don't they? We yeah. don't normally get the. And I have to say, I have written a few. I don't think Number Ten wrote that one. <laughs> um, but I think that look, the guys. That, I mean, I think Donald Trump probably takes the gold medal for political narcissism. But Boris Johnson runs him a pretty close second, I'd say. It's all about him. It always has been. And I think that look, I was a journalist, and I, and and I think that when I went on, jumped the fence, and went and worked for Tony Blair. I, in my head, I ceased being a journalist, and I've never really seen myself as a journalist ever since. I don't think Boris Johnson and Michael Gove have ever stopped yeah. seeing themselves as journalists. It's always about the next story. And with Boris Johnson, the story is always about him. And I think that is not a good way to govern. I do think, I mean, I've written in The New European this week about this, this business of Theresa May. Her, her premiership is littered with these seemed like a good idea at the time moments. The general election yeah. was one triggering article 50 when she did it was one uh, her red lines seemed like from her perspective and also appointing Johnson Davis and Fox to the key Brexit positions seemed like a good idea at the time it was never a good idea to put Boris Johnson in the foreign office it was always a terrible idea and this was I think always going to happen I think it's an opportunity for her now though I think she I don't think Boris Johnson carries nearly as much weight as either he or his many supporters in the media who love him by the way because he feeds them not because yeah. they have any respect for them i i, I think that uh, she has an opportunity now but she's got to lead i mean she can no longer go on pretending that she can keep everybody happy she can't and you talked about how you'd written some other people's resignation letters in the past how does it work in government once someone's made the decision they are going to go and I suppose it, it, it depends it's different if somebody's got to go for a personal reason and number 10 is sort of managing them out of government rather than resigning on a matter of principle but does the entire sort of number 10 machine suddenly ter become absorbed with it no not really and, it, and obviously it depends on the circumstances I can remember for example when Robin Cook resigned and you know I this is all laid out in, in my diaries where Robin he wanted that to be done in a way that obviously as it were, reflected well on him, man of principle, etc. But also he didn't have a desire 
for it to undermine and damage the, the government and the Prime Minister. So he and I had several meetings and we talked and we sat down and we, we penned words together and I remember at one point uh, he said, because I'd been sort of uh, emphasised, I was in, in the draft for Tony's letter sort of emphasising Robin's role, for example, in Kosovo and and, and also in uh, taking action in the in the Gulf and, and, and this sort of thing. And I remember Robin saying, do you think it might be possible to put less emphasis on my war heroics? A little bit more on my, my, my record of human rights. And, <laughs> and so it is, and obviously it depends on the personalities. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that there was no love loss between Theresa May and, and Boris Johnson. He was obviously going to use it to benefit him if he could as I understand it you will know better than I but as I understand it number 10 as it were jumped the gun in terms of the announcement on it but we always did try I mean it was it was not always easy because you're talking about human beings and their families and their careers and so forth but I think most of the the resignations that we we handled we we did try to do them in a way that didn't damage the government and didn't overly undermine the people concerned. And just because, away from the soap opera of Westminster, this is ostensibly all about Brexit, you're quite heavily involved in the People's Vote campaign. Uh, what do you think, how do you think is, this is planning out? How likely do you think a People's Vote is? Do you, some people are saying, well actually Theresa May's in a position now where she's, she's basically said no to the hard Brexiteers and we're edging towards a softer Brexit. Is that how you see it going? I think that's what she's trying to do, but I think one of the unfortunate consequences, the side effects of the fact that it's yet again all focusing on this sort of Tory leadership psychodrama is this this sense developing that uh, that this is a kind of nice meet in the middle sort of compromise between people like me and and, and, and the kind of hard Brexit brigade. But I feel it's the worst of all worlds because ultimately it hasn't confronted in a really full-on way the choice that the country needs confronting and that business I think is crying out to be confronted. So I, th- I, I, I think she will, I don't think this position will hold. I do think that ultimately the people should be and will be entitled to be asked, is this what you voted for? Uh, now that is, that is a fraught process, I acknowledge that. I mean, it probably means that Parliament has to defeat the deal. It probably then means that Parliament has to take control of that process. Parliament will then have to vote to want to have uh, a people's vote on the final deal. And, of course, you then have to go through all the stuff we've been through before of what the question is and who sets it and, and how and the campaigns. And, and I, can, I can sense the country think, oh, my God, do we have to go through all that again? But I think if we don't go through that again, I can't see this country coming uniting around anything that's, that's come from the politicians in the last two years. And I think that is a, you know, if you if you actually track back, this is one of those rare moments in history where Parliament and people, as reflected in that vote, are fundamentally at odds. But I do think if the people were given the ability to look at this in in, in the light of what we now know, I think they I think they would welcome it. We're now surrounded by school trips. I, 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 I think they're they're just waiting for selfies like they do Matt with you or with me. I think it's both of them. <laughs> <laughs> now, I think they're Dutch. I think they're looking at us thinking, who are those guys with furry microphones? Well, Alistair Campbell, always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. So we're now on College Green 
Well, there are lots of TV cameras and film crews set up, uh, sort of trying to capture what on earth is going on uh, in Parliament behind us. I'm joined by Katie Perry, a former Director of Communications for Theresa May, and now back at in-house communications, and Rupert Harrison, former Chief of Staff to George Osborne, now at BlackRock. So both of you, having been right at the centre of all these things, watching it from outside the, the goldfish bowl this time, what did you make of how the past couple of days have panned out? Let's start with you, Katie, as you used to work for Boris Johnson. When the news broke mid-afternoon that Boris Johnson was resigning, what did you think? Oh, it's inevitable, wasn't it? It was very expected after the kind of ambush at the Chequers. She knew what she was getting herself into. She knew that they probably wouldn't be able to sign up to this. I was surprised to read that he'd kind of you know, stood up and toasted the Prime Minister and then a couple of days later decided he couldn't live. You were surprised you said one thing and then did something else? <laughs> now, now. Um, but, uh, you know, I, but I, I think that Boris uh, and David Davis have done the right thing because if they can't sell, the, you know, if they can't sign up to collective responsibility, then they should walk and they've done so. I think that she will miss David Davis more because David was very loyal and a personal friend and she trusted his advice. Less so, Boris. No comment. <laughs> and what about you, Rupert? What did you think? What have you made of the past sort of 48 hours? Well, I think when you're in the thick of these things, uh, they have a certain momentum. And I think you can judge whether things are going to trip over into a real crisis in a matter of hours. And I think that the interesting thing was that we're already talking about, is Theresa May going to miss David Davis? We're not talking about, is her position at threat? And I think that momentum has just gone out of it in the last... 24 hours really it seems like she's got the numbers no one's really got the appetite to challenge her and and that really you know when you're at the center and you suddenly realize that okay you know we live to fight another day i think the tempo changes and should we be writing boris johnson off people some people say oh, you should never write him off there were david cameron was always very much of the view that you know he could reach parts of the tory party that others couldn't reach what was sort of george's view of boris and should he be written off <laughs> i'm not sure i could give george's view look i think that i agree with david cameron long term yeah, Boris is clearly a, a, a colourful character, a creative individual. Uh, I think for now, he doesn't have the support, doesn't have the numbers in Parliament, crucially. Uh, so if there were to be any leadership election, I just can't see him getting through to the final two. Uh, and it's interesting, the impact of his resignation hasn't been this kind of enormous earthquake. It was, in a sense, people kind of rolled their eyes and said, well, here we go. It's one of those things that people have talked about for almost ever since he got that job as Foreign Secretary. And it's been the thing that Theresa May was supposed to be dreading. And actually, the plaster has been ripped off and she's, you know, she got up this morning and the world's still turning and the cabinet met. And but it's all about timing, isn't it? And, uh, you know, it, it turns out that at this time, you know, if she sacked him a month ago or two months ago, maybe there would have been uproar within the Conservative Party. How dare you treat someone that's, you know, the core Brexiteer like this around the table? These things are always about timing. And so she's got to the point where she had to come off the fence after months and months and months of struggling both sides of the Conservative Party uh, and started a, a path and a way forward. And, um, you know, she, she, the, the, the crux of the moment, as Rupert says, when you know that you're safe, when she went to the 22 last night and they started banging on the table and said, don't go walking in the hills this summer, <laughs> is the moment she knew she was safe. And it seems like the sort of path of Brexit is softening, having sort of apparently favoured a hard Brexit. She's sort of moving more towards a softer Brexit. We haven't really heard anything from Philip Hammer, but it's more what the Treasury would have wanted. Is that how you'd characterise it? Yeah, I think there'll still be things in there that the Treasury won't like. I think what's happening really is just a confronting reality. I think, and, and she, number 10, have been forced, as we approach the deadline, we've got this October summit coming up, we've been forced to confront the reality, which is that the EU side is not going to accept all of this cake eating and cake having. Uh, I think there's still some very important differences between where we are and where the European side are, particularly on free movement of people. Uh, and, you know, we are still essentially asking for cherry picking. The key thing, I think, for now, if the UK politics is, I think, 
relatively settled for now. I think she remains in place. Are the EU going to budge on that key issue? And if they don't, then we will face a real crisis because if they force us to choose, as they are at the moment, between Norway and a sort of Canada hard Brexit with a carve-out for Northern Ireland, I don't see a majority for either of those issues in the Cabinet or the House of Commons. And then you've got a real confrontation between the two sides. And reshuffle, um, having, we've always promised the March of the Women and then she moved seven white men again. Were you disappointed by that? I'm always disappointed when you don't see more women around the Cabinet or, table. Or, or any. Um, and, and, and she had, you know, she had opportunities. Yeah, I mean, I really think Matthew Hancock is wonderful and did a brilliant job in his last role. But Anne Milton is also a brilliant politician who could possibly bring around that top table in the future as well. You know, reshuffles never quite work out the way I like to. Before, I always thought that Penny Mordaunt was going to be shooing for the first ever uh, defence female defence secretary uh, and didn't get it. So uh, I think we continue to push for more women around the cabinet table. What's going on in the in the Prime Minister's mind? You know about a lot of people. When when she's sort of faced with that, there was talk that she did number 10 were, had at least thought about the possibility of walkouts on Friday and game planning it and drawing up lists of promising young ministers. What What's going on then when you end up with a list of seven men? Well, I think it's well planned in terms of knowing that this could well happen and so having some contingency plans in place. What's not clever is sending text messages to people saying, you know what, well, there's a taxi firm down the end of the road and it's a long walk home. You know, that just winds people up and I thought that was immature and childish, to be honest. But, uh, you know, what goes through their minds is that actually who is going to play ball, who's going to really appreciate and honour collective responsibility over the next 12 months. And they'll look, be looking through those eyes. You know, sometimes in number 10, you're looking towards the end of the day and then the end of the week and then the Sunday papers and then the next week. You know, I think that sometimes when we're on the outside, we think about long term planning and what's going to happen next spring. Sometimes you can't look that far when you're inside the camp. And is that the same for you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's very important to try and get more women in the cabinet, get more diversity in the cabinet. But for Theresa May, when the priority is survival, I think you're looking for a reshuffle that doesn't unravel and you're looking for loyalty. So I think, you know, in Jeremy Hunt and Matt Hancock, she's just brought in two more now senior cabinet ministers who are just going to back her. Uh, And I think that's probably the most important currency in number 10 right now. Both also emerging as potential leadership contenders, though in uh, both in bigger jobs you know, progressively they've both got bigger jobs and they're sort of of that next generation of the party that essentially the party needs as and when Theresa May does go. And I always think every leader has a responsibility to think about who might come next and whether or not they can, you know, use those people more to connect and communicate with the public, uh, maybe younger politicians than maybe some of our older ones around the cabinet table may be. So I think it's always wise to have people close to you that could well be future material. But I don't know, maybe people are so sick of Brexit and we may end up in a no-deal scenario quite close to, to the autumn, whereby a whole lot of them won't be considered by the general public. It's not just the general public they've got to be electable with, it is the Conservative Party members and then the general public. And it's fascinating if you look at the polling of Tory members, Boris Johnson's ratings have gone down massively even in the last six months. So. He's got to do something to try and turn that round. Just very quickly, um, if you can do it very quickly, how long do you think Theresa May will stay as Prime Minister? Long. I don't see any time right now where she will be challenged. If they challenge her right now, the rules of the Conservative Party mean that she uh, will win, I think, because she's got numbers in the House of Commons at the moment. They can't then call that for another 12 months. So that's post-Brexit into your possibility of planning for the next next general election. 
I stand by what I say. I don't think she will stand at the next election, even if she wants to. I don't think she should stand at the next election, even if she wants to. But I don't think she's going anytime soon. Okay. Yeah, I think I agree with that. She's got two very big things in her favour, which is firstly, no obvious alternative. So we just talked, there are lots of candidates, but no one really stands out at the moment. And secondly, everybody knows that any new Prime Minister would face the same arithmetic in the House of Commons and the same you know, stance from the negotiating partners. So I think she probably is going to last through Brexit. And then even after March next year, we're still going to be locked into a negotiation around a future trade deal. The same dynamics could well apply. My huge thanks to Katie and to Rupert. In a moment, I'll be speaking to the Times political team to get their take on what has been going on. We'll be back after this short break. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. So I've ventured now into the Times Parliamentary Office in Westminster. Uh, it's a porter cabin on the roof of Parliament, uh, filled with books and newspapers and other general fire hazards and home of the famous Times lobby trampoline. Uh, the owner of which, Sam Coates, Deputy Political Editor, joins me along with Henry Zeffman, the political correspondent, and Lucy Fisher, Chief Political Correspondent. The title of the podcast is What the Hell is Going On? So Sam, let's start with you. What the hell is going on? Well, there are lots of ways to judge the scale of the crisis facing Theresa May. Personally, I think the best one is, how big is the hole in my trousers? <laughs> and guess what, folks? It's getting bigger, because I haven't had time to repair it. Um, when, did this, when did this first break out? I don't think we're going to give a running commentary about when it emerged and when it wasn't fixed. Politicians in Britain are not giving me the time and space and needle and thread to do what I need to do. And I think that's a fairly as good as any in this rather uncertain world way of judging what's going on. And so um, you and I have been knocking around in Parliament for longer than our young faces might suggest. Traditionally, the loss of one cabinet minister would be uh, pretty devastating for a prime minister. Uh, Some fairly junior members of the government managed to unseat Tony Blair. Um, In the end, what's going on when the prime minister manages to lose the person in charge of the biggest policy uh, that the government is dealing with and its foreign secretary in 24 hours and everyone sort of convinced themselves Theresa May stronger than she was beforehand? So last Friday saw a moment of political realignment Theresa May had been a Prime Minister taking, it sounded like, Britain towards a hard Brexit. And on Friday, she made it quite clear to her cabinet that she was going to take Britain to uh, uh, a soft Brexit. I'd say kind of something that looked about 70, 80% of the way towards Norway, Norway plus even. And um, uh, that has thrown the political dice in the air. We've had those resignations that we all know about. Um, There is uncertainty. There is clearly rebellion. Um, But after a lot of conversations, I think it's important to say given everything's up in the air, um, it's hard to say whether we are now closer to, we've taken some steps towards certainty and stability, or whether we've just ended up closer to calamity. And as of 
Tuesday morning, uh, it could go either way. Lucy, the uh, Theresa May statement to the House yesterday on Monday afternoon was, was sort of pretty extraordinary, partly because of the sort of quite upbeat tone she was trying to strike while various Tory Brexiteers stood up to, in that sort of slightly faux polite way, stood up to stick the boot in. Uh, on the sort of Richter scale of how bad th- these things get, how, how serious was that, do you think? I thought the atmosphere in the House uh, yesterday was um, interesting. Um, I thought Theresa May uh, actually projected quite a confident air as she took to the dispatch box, having been ambushed just 30 minutes earlier by the departure of Boris Johnson. Uh, and as you say, um, both Brexiteers and in fact some Remainers, both asking kind of hostile questions. Peter Bone and Andrea Jenkins being uh, among the most aggressive, sort of saying that they had been um, inundated with complaints from uh, activists in their own seats complaining about the Chequers statement. They themselves being booed by colleagues on the Tory backbenches. Um, it was a pretty febrile atmosphere. I think when you then compare that to what happened um, straight after that, when she dashed over to, to address her backbenchers in private at the 1922 committee, a lot more praise for her there. One or two people giving qualified support, 20 out of 25 MPs who spoke being very much more sort of effusive in, in their support. One former minister I was talking to on the House of Commons terrace last night said it had the feeling of the 2003 party conference, uh, Ian Duncan Smith's last, where he had an extraordinary, I think it was 27 standing ovations from the audience as everyone sort of you know feeling almost sort of possibly ashamed of their plotting behind his back sort of you know rose to sort of support him to his face sort of cheering away and people sort of claimed you could hear you know the carpet shift <laughs> underneath them with, with every move so, so I wonder if the, the that support is less than uh, is, is a little more disingenuous than it sounds. Theresa May had lots of standing ovations during her party conference last year but that was for slightly different reasons <laughs> in the, she was struggling to get through. Henry lots of talk about letters going in triggering leadership contests if people for some reason aren't following it as closely as we are explain the process of how if a group of Tory MPs wanted to get rid of her how does that happen? There is a threshold to be met Uh, specifically 48 letters need to be submitted uh, by Tory MPs to Sir Graham Brady the chairman of the 1922 committee which is a rather grand way of saying he's effectively the backbencher's shop steward Uh, now he when he gets those letters uh, as he apparently does from time to time pops them in a safe and never tells anyone until he meets that magic 48 number so there isn't a running total going it's a slightly strange kind of game theory in that MPs submitting letters don't know if they are number 48 or number uh, 18 once that threshold is met if it is ever met there will then be a vote of confidence in Theresa May That's actually what happened to Ian Duncan Smith. All that is required for her to win that, half plus one of the parliamentary party backing her, which it looks like she would get pretty easily at the moment. But, you know, should you get to a vote of confidence, you know, who knows how how things would happen. So the calculation that the Brexiteers are making, the ones who are really unhappy, is they could probably get 48 signatures to trigger the contest, but she would end up winning it and would be in an even stronger position. Well, uh, she might emerge in a stronger position, although uh, slightly different Tory leadership rules, but it's worth remembering that Margaret Thatcher actually won a few uh, leadership elections, came top in the 1991 first round. But, you know, actually once there are measures of your weakness and how many of your MPs don't actually like you, it's much harder to, to go on serenely. Sam, part of the my ongoing campaign to point out that this is not normal none of what keeps happening in British politics anymore fits with the normal pattern of uh, how these things work out actually Jeremy Corbyn lost a vote of no confidence amongst Labour MPs and still carried on he lost it was a sort of slightly strange argument between Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May where he was pointing out that she'd lost 10 ministers in eight months and she said well you lost 100 so 
I'm not as I'm only one tenth as rubbish as you are. Do you think those same rules ultimately apply? Are there any of the fundamentals of politics which still apply? Are we just in uncharted territory that that you can lose cabinet ministers and end up in a stronger position? You can, having done her best to prove to everyone that she was really a Brexiteer, she now seems to be shifting to try and get her plan through on the support of Labour MPs. The whole world's gone mad. For the last 20 years watching politics, uh, there have been some norms, uh, and many, many of those norms have just disappeared. Uh, we are way beyond the point that in previous administrations you'd have seen the Prime Minister go, uh, you'd have seen uh, a general election be called, uh, you would have seen wholesale clearouts of cabinet ministers for much less than they are, are able to stay in their jobs for. All of those norms have appear to have gone or been temporarily suspended. I think there is one thing now that matters, and that is what happens in parliamentary votes. Clear everything out of else out of your mind, even talk of leadership contests. I think the only thing that matters is what gets voted through. And we're in a hung parliament, right? We have a minority Tory government supported by a handful of DUP MPs and uh, Remain rebels and Brexit rebels and alliances forming. And that means uh, even though you would never call it a government of national unity or anything like it, you've got much more working across the benches than we've ever seen in our lifetimes, even in the years of the coalition government, as people try to work out what they can accept when it comes to Brexit. Brexit means Brexit, but it is actually about the policy on just about every single area of domestic and international policy for the rest of our lives, which is why this is causing the traditional sort of, as it were, cleavages of British politics to break apart and new ones to be formed. And that's why you're seeing unconventional behaviour in the Commons. Let's just talk about which of the two votes that matter. There's the vote at the end of the process about what Theresa May's deal looks like. The big picture of what's going on this week is you've got a whole bunch of Brexiteers, including Boris Johnson and David Davis, saying we're not going to support in Parliament what you bring home. And so if you, Theresa May, want to get it through, you're going to have to do that with the help of the opposition. Can she do it? Question mark. And then all the way in the lead up to those votes, the Brexiteers are going to be trying to show their strength. So I think the first thing to look for will be next week's votes on the Customs and Trade Bill. Well, there'll be the first chance for Brexiters to show whether or not they've got 20, 40, 60 or 80 of their own to inflict damage on Theresa May to warn her that at the end of the process they'll come back and hold a blow at the waterline. So nothing matters other than votes and we're going to find out what the shape of those votes are. We'll be able to test those numbers in less than a week's time. Now, Henry, you're um, one half of the Times Brexit briefing team that does the uh, hugely popular email every Thursday afternoon. All the debate has been about Theresa May and, you know, the agreement that she struck. It's only an agreement she struck with her own cabinet. What's the evidence that this is going to curry any more favour with Brussels than all the other ideas which have been shot down so far? Well, there is quite an important point here, which is that Brussels, uh, since pretty much uh, Theresa May became Prime Minister in July 2016, has been looking for evidence that Theresa May will actually take on what they see as the pernicious influence of the kind of hard Brexiteers in her party and, until yesterday, uh, in her cabinet. Boris and David Davis quitting over her plan for Brexit is sign of that. And I do think there is the possibility uh, that uh, certainly some national leaders in the EU, perhaps even elements of the European Commission, might look on that favourably and say credit to Theresa May. She has compromised. Uh, We will now compromise in turn. Because you've got to remember the big fear of Brussels throughout all of this, uh, and they perhaps don't follow the ins and outs of where Tory MPs stand on various leadership contenders as closely as us. Their big fear has always been that Boris Johnson will become Prime Minister. They hate Boris Johnson. They see him as a British Trump uh, or, you know, a British version of some other sort of European populist leaders. And now that he has left the government, they will see in Theresa May a woman who has done 
her best to ward off that sort of Brexiteer bogeyman. And there is the possibility, I think, of the softening just slightly of some of their red lines. Presumably she can go to them and quite honestly say, look, this is the plan that I've come up with. I've already lost two cabinet ministers over this. I can't go any softer. It's not an empty threat anymore, the, the, the possibility of war. And now that Boris Johnson and David Davis are on the back benches, uh, making noises about rejecting elements of Theresa May's deal, she can say to them, I think with some plausibility, that if the EU does not compromise any further, there is the very real possibility that she does not have the votes in the House of Commons to carry a Brexit deal. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean a people's vote, as Andrew Adonis might wish. It doesn't mean that Jeremy Corbyn is going to become Prime Minister and wipe this all away, although it's an open question whether he'd want to anyway. What it does mean is that the UK would leave the EU still at 11pm on March 29th next year, just without any deal whatsoever. Now, that is cataclysmic for the UK in all sorts of ways, but it's pretty disastrous for the EU too. And the EU don't want that. We can't wrap up without talking about the reshuffle. I know we have one on a sort of weekly basis. Dominic Raab replacing David Davis here. Brexit, Jeremy Hunt goes to foreign. Matt Hancock goes to health. Jeremy Wright, people's favourite, very much the household name of the move, becomes culture secretary. And Geoffrey Cox becomes attorney general. Is there any significance to those moves, Sam, apart from the fact that finally some white middle-aged men have got a break? Yeah, it was interesting. There were more people called Jeremy promoted than there were women uh, in, the, in, 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 in the reshuffle. Uh, I think net we were up one remainder because Boris left the cabinet and Geoffrey Cox. He's came. a lever. Oh, is he a lever? He's a lever. But he was, interestingly, at the 1922 committee, he was wheeled out midway through the committee meeting by Brandon Lewis, the Tory party chairman, to say, look, I found a lever who loves Theresa May's deal. And two hours later, he became attorney general. Um, well, he's the only one, he's the only appointment, and of course I know no listener uh, p- apart from him will probably have ever heard of him uh, before, but he's the only cabinet appointment to have uh, attracted some ire. I mean, Geoffrey Cox is a barrister. He, an enorm- he has been earning an enormous amount of money outside, outside government and, and, until this point. So just in the interests of fun i'm going to read you a text message from a tory mp that i got last night just about this and i really didn't think it was a particularly noteworthy appointment but it goes like this this is a staggeringly poor choice that has gone down very badly with the backbenchers picking what many would call a part-time mp who hasn't been there to do the heavy lifting for the past few months because he's got one of the best played and plum jobs in government it's gone down just about as well as a bucket of cold Sick. I think Geoffrey Cox would re- uh, reject every single element of that uh, if we well, were to put it. I think he would accept. He, he's been quite busy in his role as a barrister, yes. which may have kept him from the Commons um, occasionally. Jeremy, Jeremy Hunt, Lucy. Um, he once said that health was going to be his last big job. He's now taken the job as Foreign Secretary. Lots of people now see that he's on a trajectory of certainly throwing his hat into the leadership contest whenever it is that it comes yes sir i think that's been a sort of long-standing um speculation about him being on maneuvers um yeah well listen he's got a very sort of you know soft landing uh, in in the foreign office where boris johnson was sort of widely um i think loathed and ridiculed by his officials by british diplomats around the world um, i got a text yesterday from a whitehall contact saying that champagne had been cracked open by securocrats in the department who had set aside several bottles uh, for what they had termed Liberation Day, the day that they would finally be relieved of Boris Johnson as Foreign Secretary. So I think Jeremy Hunt will be welcomed in that appointment. You know, he's done a pretty good job holding in as Health Secretary, the longest uh, standing Health Secretary in history, managed to kind of leave signing off that uh, enormous £20 billion uh, cheque for the 70th 
birthday anniversary and uh, yeah he's definitely one to watch and just finally henry uh, the new brexit secretary dominic raab what do we know about him well he used to work for david davis curiously um he was one of that strange breed of advisors to uh, opposition mps uh, who described himself as chief of staff uh, unclear how big david davis's staff was when he was shadow home secretary but nevertheless um david davis uh, described him yesterday uh, as his uh, protege uh, he once introduced dominic raab to a colleague by saying this is dominic raab he used to work in the foreign office and he has a black belt in karate the really important point is that, and this is part of the reason why David Davis quit, although he wouldn't admit it, is that the role of Brexit secretary is far diminished from what it was conceived of uh, in July 2016 when David Davis was given the job. Dominic Raab will not be negotiating the UK's exit from the European Union. Uh, he will have some sort of administrative oversight of getting the UK ready domestically for leaving and bits of legislation. But big promotion for Dominic Raab. Is it actually a big job? Only really in name. And might not even exist after March next year. So there was already talk of it being the department being dismantled. Um, is there anyone else we should be keeping an eye on or do we think it's all settled? The question is, what does Boris Johnson do next? I'm told that he is biding a little bit of time, letting the extraordinary resignation letter attacking the Prime Minister's Brexit speak for itself, and then he's going to make a play. We don't know what he's going to do next, but he released a photo of his own resignation last <laughs> night, which I the have to say Boris is Johnson pretty... The Johnson thing ever. Yes, where he did the whole looking down the barrel of the gun style kind of gritted and determined for the future um uh, it was look. a bit trump it's what trump does every time he signs a sort of presidential order i could i could feel him squeezing his buttock muscles as he did it <laughs> so the question is what is he girding his loins for well, from uh, the hole in your trousers to girded loins, that seems like uh, the perfect place to edit. My thanks to Sam Coates, Heavy Zeffman and Lucy Fisher. Well, that's all we've got time for from this special from Westminster. Don't forget to subscribe to my morning email. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox and I can be in your inbox for free every morning, uh, at least Monday to Friday. And subscribe to the podcast on iTunes on your Android device. But for now, my thanks to all of my guests. But for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. <laughs>